Hello, I'm Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise, and this is the Enterprising Mindsets podcast. And my guest today is Lou Cordwell. Lou is the Chief Executive of Manchester-based digital design studio Magnetic North. Founded in 2000, the company quickly established an international reputation with an award-winning client portfolio, and today the studio continues to work with a wide range of companies and sectors, helping them to meet and shape an evolving audience needs by putting digital at the heart of their businesses. Alongside the day job, she's the co-chair of Greater Manchester's Local Enterprise Partnership and chair of Design Manchester. She's also the founding investor in Albright and a passionate campaigner for gender equality in business and the tech industry. Lou was awarded an OBE in the 2018 New Year's Honours for services to the creative and digital economy. Lou, welcome to Enterprising Mindsets. Thanks, Sharon. It's great to be here. Kind of be here. You know, we're not anywhere, any of us at the minute, are we? So <laughs> No. Well, where are you as we as we're in like the second or third week of lockdown? So I, I'm working from home, which is where we've been since March, which I can't I can't quite believe that we might we might do the full 12 months on this one. So, yeah, it's been I think for anybody, certainly, you know, Greater Manchester based, it's been a very long lockdown, uh, not just the last few months. Absolutely. I can testify that as a, as a Greater Manchester Bolton resident, indeed. Yeah. And so um, dare I ask the question about juggling homeschooling? So I have two children. I have a 13-year-old boy and uh, an eight-year-old uh, girl. So so very, very different situations. And they're doing their very, very best in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's just not what any of us would choose, is it, at the minute? Not least the teachers who are stuck on, on the Zooms from hell. So, yeah. <laughs> Not at all, not at all. I mean, it, it does show you that whole resourcefulness, doesn't it, of, of, of children and young people, you know, at play. So um, I get my, my first question, if we can kind of get into it, is, is what does an enterprising mindset mean to you personally, Lou? So, so I, I think what we've seen in the last twelve months um, is uh, is is probably the very definition of a whole society, isn't it? Having to operate an enterprising mindset, and and I definitely, you know, I know you talk a lot about this, Sharon, but but enterprising doesn't necessarily mean you're running your own business. I think there are lots of people who are in all kinds of organisations. You know, we're having to be enterprising in our families, in our schools, in our hospitals, in our communities. So I think enterprising is being able to think creatively in response to a scenario or a problem or a situation, often at pace, sometimes with very few resources, uh, often with very difficult challenges and, you know, what we in business would call stakeholder management around that. So so I, I think it's that ability to pivot and turn and react and just be able to um, innovate in the moment, isn't it? And I think um, we've probably never never been asked as business leaders, as community leaders, as family leaders to, to do that more than we have in the last 12 months. Absolutely. And I guess it's just being able to be constantly looking forward, not spending too much time regretting or kind of reviewing mistakes. Or, or you, if you are looking at mistakes, you're looking at ways that you can test and learn or fail forward. All of those things become real things, don't they, in the home uh, as well as in a business yeah. as well. And I, and I think also, you know, the, the thing I often talk about is the challenge, and, and this is particularly the case in, in the, the kind of business context of being enterprising, is that, you know, there are often those moments where you don't think you've got anything left to give, where you just have to dig in one more time, you know, and that is part of, of being enterprising, you know, and having to kind of 
you know, um, find a last burst of energy or ideas or enthusiasm when you when you really feel quite spent. And I've heard you talk a number of times about that, that kind of finding something, that something from somewhere where you feel you just haven't got any more or less. I think we've been all been in that that situation. But it, it's just, is that something that happened? Is that something that you kind of can think back and there were early influences where you helped you develop that? Or is that something that's happened recently? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's probably in you as a person, isn't it? Um often from earlier than you recognize but i think um I, you know i often talk about it being quite a northern thing like we're quite industrious you know like we're, we're very pragmatic aren't we as a set of people we're often playing second fiddle to somebody and having to kind of prove ourselves you know? so i a think bit chippy yeah exactly <laughs> i think there's a little bit of challenging the status quo and a little bit of thinking on your feet but i think you also um it comes from how much you want it so, so I think often in, in those moments where you could lose a business or, I don't know, you could lose a client or you could lose an opportunity, that's where the hunger kicks in, isn't it? And and you find something in yourself to go, no, I really, really, we've come so far. Let's not, let's not let this be the last, the last stage of this or the end of this. So, so I think it comes from a bit of tenacity, a bit of hunger. And also the, the flip side of that, which I, I have definitely only learned with age, uh, one of the few good things that comes with age is when you, you know, I am a bit like a dog with a bone sometimes. And that's good on some senses because you need that to get you through those difficult situations. But you sometimes need to recognise when it's just time to let go and go, right, this is done now. This is dead. <laughs> just just leave it. That, I think that's where your experience kicks in a bit. And at what point do you know when that decision is the right one to take, whether or not to just keep going at it one more time <laughs> or whether to just leave it alone and go, do you know what? You're OK. Thanks. We're done. I think um, I think you learn to listen to other people more, don't you? So, so I think I, I, I've learned, I suppose, two things. One, to listen to a circle of people whose opinions you respect and and whose guidance you trust. And they're not necessarily people involved in the industry. You know, I I, I will often seek the counsel of my husband who describes himself as the silent shareholder, you know, uh, in, in, in all of my endeavours, you know, because the clarity sometimes of people's outside in perspective is really useful, but also just your own gut feel. You know, often in most of those situations, if you really sit still and quietly long enough, you do have a gut feel on it, don't you? And and you need to learn to listen to that, even if it's not entirely logical. So I think I've definitely learned that almost every time I've ignored my gut feel, it's gone terribly wrong. <laughs> so, so I'm trying to learn to get better at listening to it. Yeah, and it's just interesting. You're you're obviously a colleague of our, of us both. Sam White was uh, was on our first series of uh, Enterprising Mindset, and she was saying you have to really listen out for the important, but it's quiet. The kind of urgent is really noisy, and it'll always grab your attention. It'll always want your attention, but you have to really kind of listen out for the important. And your gut instinct is uh, that definitely has resonance for me. And and I think it's particularly. I mean, we're we're talking a lot in a Greater Manchester context at the moment about economic recovery and I, and I think that's the real jeopardy actually of the moment that we're in is you know what's a, a colleague of mine described to me the other day you know is as filtering the the urgent or you know the the burning platform from the important as you're describing there because actually the temptation is in a moment where there's a lot of burning platforms and that and and pretty much you know there's a there's a daily firefighting going on somewhere in the current situation isn't there 
that you just take anything, you'll take any job, you'll take any kind of recovery, you'll take anybody's money. And the risk is that without a clear vision on the other side of that, you look up and, and we're, we actually don't like the place that, that we kind of got left with at the end of that. So, so I think, I think, and that's true for a company or an organization, I think holding firm now in this very difficult moment on what kind of success you want on the other side of that is, I think, incredibly important. And it takes some nerve that, doesn't it, to hold that tension? Really does, does. yeah, yeah. Magnetic North is a trailblazer. It is absolutely, well, unique of its time. It was set up in, in 2000 as a, at that time, a digital design studio. So that would have been pretty unique um, at that time. So tell us a little bit about Magnetic North and how you founded it. My background before I started the business was so I worked in big mainstream comms organisations. So kind of big multinationals like WPP and ran, you know, these huge kind of advertising and communications accounts, which was amazing. I mean, you know, in your 20s, getting to fly around the world and, you know, learn how big brands work and huge organizations. And it was, um, I worked at an organization most latterly called JWT, and which is the world's first advertising agency. And so, uh, you know, pe- people used to joke and say, it's a wonderful place to work if your father can afford to send you there. So you got paid nothing uh, and then kind of traveled the world and learned how all these enormous brands and campaigns worked, you know. So it was a fantastic grounding actually um in kind of brand strategy and in understanding clients and how you win pitches and all that kind of stuff but then um kind of late 90s really you know the the internet happened and and, um and we would increasingly get asked by clients you know how we they might what is a website and how might one make one you know and and of course a lot of those mainstream communications agencies and two degrees still you know just didn't get it they largely wanted to make telly and win at can and you know do all that stuff so 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 I, i'd kind of taken i guess a bit of an unusual interest in it and got shipped off really to go and have a look at how we might start to deal with these you know what we've seen as slightly peripheral i think inquiries you know um and was just blown away you know i just kind of stepped into this world that was just emerging of very geeky largely boys so either stuck in bedrooms in the middle of nowhere or massively overfunded in some office in Soho all making these websites you know that four people in the UK could access and charging two million quid for it and whilst it was quite broken I was just so excited at what it meant for our universe and 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 you know and at that time you know there was a whole industry that had built its trade on the craft of getting down to 30 seconds of film or the craft of getting down to one headline in a newspaper. And then, you know, and, and the premise was you pushed that message at a set of consumers and that told them what to believe. And all of a sudden here was this kind of permission based experience, you know, where frankly, if consumers didn't like what they saw, they just clicked off and that was the end of the conversation everybody's conversation was going to be different and you could have an hour's conversation with a brand if you wanted to so so that just seemed to me to break all the rules which therefore became incredibly appealing and and I hurried back to HQ saying this is the future we should do this um and a and a very kind brilliant man who was then the chief exec um Stephen Carter now Lord Carter pulled me to one side he himself was about to go and be chief exec of a tech company which I didn't know at the time and said, you know, you're right, but you'll never make that happen here. This is a big old dinosaur and 
you know, it'll take a long time. So why don't you go and do it yourself? So that's where we started, really. And people who work for us now giggle, you know, but less than 25% of the UK had internet access at that point. So it's easy now to think that, of course, this was going to be a winner, you know, but I, I remember literally being almost patted on the head as I left and everybody saying, well, when all goes wrong in a year, you know, you can have your job back. Don't worry. And I was like, well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. <laughs> you know, so uh yeah and we just got really lucky you know we were the right time the right place my view was unlike a lot of the creative industry that was incredibly london dominated why wouldn't manchester become a really significant international digital city given that we invented the computer and it was the world wide web so our peers were like two kids in Brooklyn and four guys in Croatia and there were, there were no boundaries really at that point and we just carved ourselves a niche where we said we want to be at that end of the spectrum that does things first you know that experiments with new technologies pushes frontiers and we, we used to and I laugh now because we're 20 years old but we used to say because in 20 years we want to look back and be able to see all the things we changed so, so it's, it's quite odd now. We're, we're at the end of that 20 years going, oh, yeah, we changed loads of things. That was brilliant. What next? You know, fantastic. And I guess it, just speaking to that, that uh, about that, about being lucky, just ask you a question around that. So the Rose Review finds a couple of reinforcing cultural barriers affecting women thinking of starting a business, obviously one of them being around self belief and this is a perceived gap in ability rather than an actual gap in skill sets um so women are more likely to attribute success to having a good team or being in the right place at the right time yeah. what's what's your thoughts on that as a female founder yourself oh it amazes me right? i work with now some incredibly brilliant women who consistently undervalue themselves and it, it's really it's difficult isn't it to find a balance because because um you know, you do need to kind of shift that culture from focusing on the three things you can't do rather than the seven things you can. It's absolutely writ large in kind of entrepreneurial terms because it was, I absolutely did not want to start a business. It, the, the whole thought made me feel slightly sick. I was utterly horrified. What did your family think about it? And um, my family were really supportive, but I didn't right. know anybody who didn't work for somebody else. You know, mm. so my dad worked for the council. My mum worked for the university. A good job was working for someone else. I mean, still to his dying day, I don't think my dad really knew what I actually did. I mean, he was very proud of the fact that I did it, whatever it was, you know, but for a man who built bridges, it was it was quite ethereal, you know. So so I think um, so I think. You know, everybody else can believe in you, but you still got that massive challenge, haven't you, of, of self-belief. And and I will still daily come across things. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Can I actually do that? Well, we'll give it. You learn in the end that you'll give it a go. And probably nine times out of 10, you will. You will do it. But it's a it's a huge issue. And it goes all the way back to four, five, six year old girls in school. That's where it begins. And it's partly forced upon them. And it's partly an internal lack of self-belief that we do. If we're really going to change things in the, in the in the longer term, then we are going to have to try and work with that and try and find ways to overcome it because it is ultimately people masquerade it as skills, don't they? So you're like, oh, I haven't got the skills to do that. It's like you really have got to do that. You just don't have the confidence to do that, and then that becomes incredibly difficult when it's borrowing money and taking other people's money and wanting to kind of scale a business and all of the things that come with that as well as you know some of the prejudices that women encounter when they do try and go and raise money and all, all that stuff so so it's definitely 
beginning from the inside, isn't it? And having a self-belief that it's absolutely normal. But I think I think a big part of what we have to do as people who've as as women who've done it and been on that journey is you have to talk more openly about the reality of that as a woman and how it is different. Um, you know, there are some biological differences. If you want to have children, you get to a point where you're going to have them. You know, what so, so a female is going to physically have to carry the child and give birth at some point. And that presents a whole different wave of challenges that, frankly, no man in business is ever going to have. You know, so I think you've almost got to kind of front those out, not as weaknesses, but just differences and and things that you will have to overcome. Um, and that's OK. You know, they are they are overcomable, but not by being superwoman and doing everything a man can do and everything a woman can do and more. You know, it's a that, it's a real balance, isn't it? It is. Totally. It's a real balance. I mean, I guess, you know, just listening um, to yourself, you know, I've heard you speak powerfully about that vision for Greater Manchester post-COVID. And I guess it is that balance, isn't it, between kind of um, the way we talk, you know, as women leaders about ourselves and our own achievements in ways that owns those achievements, but also recognises that we still make those mistakes, we learn from them. And it's about create, not creating a hero because that's not what leadership is. It's just, I guess it's about normalising learning and mistakes and all of those things and not trying to be superwoman. It's, it's just, it's really hard though, isn't it? In a world of personal branding, yes, <laughs> it's it really is. hard. It is. And and actually, do you know one of the things that, that I've learned in recent years, which some very kind people have done for me and I, and I try to do in return, is often people, not just women, but people don't hear the lovely things that other people say about them. And so one of the things I try really hard to do is if I hear somebody else um, give some great feedback, especially to a, a another woman and especially to somebody who's kind of learning their trade or coming up through the ranks, as I always make a point of relaying that back to them, because I think there's not there's no better lift, is there? You know, to know that somebody else, when you weren't in the room, said, "Oh, she's brilliant! Like that, she's great. She really knows her stuff." And and I think we, you know, we we need to kind of look after each other a little bit more in those ways because we do possibly need it a little bit more to kind of boost our own belief in ourselves. Yeah. Right? That's fantastic. You're kind of repaying it forward, aren't you? Sharing what someone else has said when that's, that's brilliant. Can I, can I talk to you about your non-day job, the, the, the the co-chair of Greater Manchester's LEP? Uh, Again, I've heard you speak powerfully about this future vision of post-COVID economy for Greater Manchester. Tell us what it is that you see and how can we engage more young people, specifically young women, in building that vision for Greater Manchester? So, so I, I think we've got a particularly, you know, I mean, the word, everybody's word, I thought it might be word of the year, but it wasn't, was it? It was pandemic. Everybody's you know, <laughs> word is, is unprecedented. So we've got this incredible moment in time, you know, where we are literally living through history. I don't think we'll ever see another moment like this in my lifetime anyway. Um, and I think um, whilst it's utterly catastrophic and none of us would have wished for it in so many ways, it does feel a little bit like this was coming anyway, not not necessarily the kind of health um, situation, but the the challenge to the status quo, you know, that has existed for a really long time. And, and, and like so many things, what COVID's done is accelerate that. So so and by which I mean, you know, a bunch of people for, for a good 12, 18 months, if not more. And ahead of this point have been talking about um 
the inequalities and the lack of sustainability there is around that, the challenges around the planet, you know, largely the restrictions of the conventional growth model, which is, you know, um, eternal growth, you know, and the eternal youth of eternal growth uh, and and the constant strive to drive shareholder value being the ultimate measure of that growth. And so so I think I think this rumble was coming anyway. What what the last year's shown us is I think two things. One, we've actually, for the first time in society, had a moment where we've stepped off a treadmill. And we and we largely, I don't think, have done that. We're all really busy with our day jobs and really busy with our families and all of the things that that, that presents. And all of a sudden, we've stepped off and looked up and gone, mm, actually, if I was given the choice, I think I'd rather not go back to normal. I'd rather go forward to something a bit better because there's a lot of this that's quite broken. You know, there's a lot of people without whom we don't have food and we don't have hospitals and we don't get our bins emptied and all of those things that actually are treated pretty shoddily um by by their employers and by society we've not really looked after nature and it turns out it's pretty cool and we really quite like it because we can go for a walk at lunchtime and all that kind of stuff and also that that this idea that we as individuals are completely powerless in in the society you know in the in the constructs of a wider society when it turns out that actually we're not we can help our neighbor we can stop driving a car and that drops pollution levels we can shop in a certain way and that impacts on our high street so so i think i think we're in this weird moment where so much stuff's kind of almost collapsing around us that probably was going to disappear and change over 10 years, but it's doing it in a matter of months not years and that presents us with this window to build it back in a better shape than we had it before now i might slightly disagree with some of our political leaders on what better looks like but for me better is firmly a conscious capitalism vision that's fairer for people and fairer for the planet so so i think and, and that's not a new concept to greater manchester because that kind of radicalism and social empowerment from pankhurst to Peterloo, all, all that stuff it's right in our dna the combination of that DNA plus the unusual way we're wired, as in through the LEP and through GMCA, we've got this very tight public-private partnership, means that we're probably one of the few places on the planet that can construct a whole place response to that and choose, as we have done through, through the economic vision, to put a big fat flag in in conscious capitalism and say, actually, we as a whole place believe in that. And if you believe in that too, please come and work here, live here, invest here, build your business here, build your life here, you know, and we will do our best to deliver this over the next 10, 20 years. And translating that to access to funding, uh, support for funding expertise, obviously that was highlighted as another barrier for female entrepreneurs. In response to the Rose Review, there's been an introduction of experts in residence roles in local enterprise partnerships. I know that's something that's key to to the Manchester LEP. How do you see that working in practice to to meet that vision that you've just described? So we're really lucky that we, we have um, a kind of executional partner in the growth company, and, and they obviously have some some fairly well honed sophisticated machines for engaging in all of those different aspects from that initial funding injection that people need to get going all the way through to you know future funding rounds and future business support to help those businesses to grow so so as well as our kind of private sector partners we're working now hand in hand with the growth company to make sure that you know all of those priorities that we've listed out in the vision 
are translated through to the the on the ground support. So we we already do in in the funding mechanisms that we have disproportionately well in terms of the share of female founders. But obviously, we know diversity and inclusion is more than just the gender issue. It's now a much wider spotlight, and rightly so. So so I think getting that really truly inclusive picture, you know, um, through into everybody from skills agenda and who gets to to make the most of the new opportunities that are coming through into entrepreneurialism and who gets to start the businesses and 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 we know in times of economic crisis like this we do start to see a really disproportionately high number of new businesses starting um and certainly anecdotally what i've found over the years is there's a bit of a trigger moment almost with female entrepreneurs where they might have had a side project or a dream or a you know an idea and and never quite taken that leap and then all of a sudden they they get handed a redundancy check they've almost got no choice you know it's, it's, there, is, there isn't a job to go to so they're going to take that moment so so i think you've almost got to take the moment haven't you really and say well there, there is an opportunity here to create a new wave of businesses that that do crucially drive economic growth but do drive that new opportunity and and i think you know, so much of that is going to be digitally led, which presents a massive opportunity for the generation of people who can't even imagine an, a, a universe without the technologies that, you know, so, so I think in particular, those kind of digitally enabled businesses, whether that's fashion powered by social media or, you know, I, I see some amazing businesses coming through from young people now, um, but but we've got to get the gender balance right in that, haven't we, if, if we're going to kind of close that mm. gap. And what tips would you give young women who are considering uh, starting a business right now in the situation we've got? I think the the best advice I can give to anybody is because I think this is almost how you, women need to think in order to get comfortable with the concept is you've got to write down or map out in your head the worst thing that could happen <laughs> and get comfortable with the worst thing that could happen. If you can live with the worst thing that could happen out of this, then why wouldn't you go for it? You know, so, so I think that's fantastic. I love naturally that. Risk averse, you know, as people, I always look at something and if, if the worst case scenario utterly terrifies me, then it's probably too big a leap. Whereas if I could live with it, then it's probably worth the jump. And so, so I think you've almost got to work backwards from that and then really quickly find yourself a couple of people that you can use as a sounding board, you know, who will just guide you through that journey. And they don't have to be formal mentors. You know, they can just be people you speak, pick up the phone to or, you know, act as a bit of a kind of guide for you over the coming months um, and years. But it, in a sense, you've just got to start somewhere. I mean, I think that, that's the key thing is... If you over business plan things and you overthink things, then, you know, the window will be gone before you know it. And just listening to you, you know, your energy, your passion, your enthusiasm is is palpable. Is there any practical or tactical tips that you could share with us that's helped you navigate the last 10 months that help you keep that that passion? So, do, do you know, I was talking to somebody else about this the other day saying, I think never before it, certainly in my, my kind of working career, I've had to call on my own moral compass as much as I have done in the last 12 months because because we're in an odd situation where, you know, without being political, the, you know, the advice from government can change in a heartbeat. You know, we can be U-turning, you know, as quickly as we're making the announcements. 
nobody fully knows what comes next. The evidence base is evolving on a daily basis, isn't it? And so, so you're having to make quite um, huge decisions almost on a daily basis based on what you personally think is right and wrong. And, and so I think, you know, the definitely what's helped me to at least be able to sleep at night is to say, well, do you know what? In that moment in time, I did what I felt was the right thing to do. And it might not always work, but I at least did what I felt was right. You know, and right being not just necessarily how can I make the best book today, but how, how can you behave in a way that is true to those principles that we're all, you know, kind of passionate about. And so, so I think, and, and I do think as a business leader, you have a responsibility to try and keep as many people in a job. You, know, you have a responsibility to try and look after your employees in, a, in a, an extraordinarily difficult moment. And, and as a, a woman, you've got an opportunity to kind of try and bring another generation of female entrepreneurs and, and, and business leaders through, you know, because they might just have the one moment in time where they can start that business. And, you know, so, so I think I think the thing for me has just been, can I go to bed at night and go, well, I gave it all I could. And, and I did what I thought was right in the moment. And what time will tell, you know, whether, whether it was the right thing to do or not. I think that's sound advice. I think a litmus test of being able to sleep at night uh, is uh, is a fantastic one. Although, um, you know, I don't know about you, but I can't, I really do struggle to sleep at the minute, regardless because of the current situation. But you've been amazing. Thank you so much, Lou. Thanks, I really Sophie. appreciate it. I really enjoyed um, it. Great to talk to you again. You were brilliant. Uh, thank you to Lou. Um, Enterprising Mindsets is a podcast brought to you by Young Enterprise. If you'd like to hear more, please do subscribe via your favourite podcast app.